Hey everyone, and welcome to the Vince Sanders Complete Fitness Podcast. These podcasts are all designed to help us understand each other a little better, come together as a community, and just spread a little bit more of the love. Um, in these episodes, we have various guests talking about different subjects that some of you may know about, some of you may not, but hopefully you all leave with a better understanding of them. Uh, if you enjoy them, please pass them on to your friends, and I look forward to any comments you'd like to leave. So let's get into today's episode. Hey everybody and welcome to today's podcast. Uh, today I want to talk about food. Food, surprise. Um, food fascinates me, um, not just because it is delicious, but it's the one, that doing, doing my job, mental health and, and physical health and stuff, the, the one thing that you really come up across all the time is people's relationships to food. And what it means to them, what emotional drives it has, you know, even something simple as somebody saying to me last night, my husband's making a chicken burger, I've got the calories left to eat it, am I allowed? And me going, absolutely you can. And then why do I feel guilty about it? it it's so intrinsic to everything that we do. You know, it can control our moods. You know, I am the hangriest person on the planet, by the way. So, you know, I will completely attest to that to the point where we've actually been out before, not long to have dinner, and I've had to go buy some food. And my other half is like, why? We're about to eat. I'm like, first of all, when have you ever known me not to eat? And second of all, I'm going to turn to an asshole in a minute because I'm starving and I don't like it. Which is actually, interestingly, why... I am, what well, I mean, I'm going to coin the phrase, I suppose. I am a long shredder. Uh, some people can cut weight in six weeks. Um, I mean, I, I'm better at it now, but it is generally down to my activity levels. I'm not doing, obviously nobody's doing as much as they are now, so our calorie requirements are very low in comparison to what we normally be doing. But for me, even when I'm at my peak of activity, it takes me nearly 20 weeks to cut sometimes just because... Because I can't do it quicker, because I've done dramatic, I don't like the term dramatic, um, you know, it's all relative to the person, you know, 1800 calories for me is a huge deficit to the point where I can't function properly. For some people, they'd kill to have 1800 calories in, in their diet, you know, for, I can cut, depending on my activity levels, anywhere from 2300 calories, sometimes 2900 calories is a cut, I have actively lost 10 kilos whilst going no lower than 2,700 calories, 2,900 calories. It, it is completely down at the time to your activity levels and the size of you. Anyway, and I can't stand being hungry. I cannot stand it. it I mean, it irritates me to be hungry. I'm very much charged by it. Now, as it goes, when you do start to cut weight and your metabolism adjusts or your body gets used to your frequency of food, I don't get hungry so often anymore. I can actually go, I can go long periods of time without eating, especially if I'm doing some endurance events. Like when we did, uh, when was it, a couple of years ago now, must have been, we did the million pound challenge, me and my dearly departed friend Simon. Um, and, you know, for 11 hours straight, I lifted weights and I barely ate a thing. I had a sip of some protein shake and intro sugar water. There wasn't anything else in it. When me and Gary then later on that year, who owns the gym that uh, I work at, he, me and him tried to do the South Downs Trail, which was, if ever there was male hubris, that was it. Um, 
and yeah, I didn't eat for 14 hours, really. Barely a few bits, it, it, you know, just walk and, and didn't really drink either, you know, I can set myself on that goal. But on a general cut, when I know that I uh, can't eat because I'm trying to control it, and I think this is the thing as well, massively with a lot of people is, if you have very little restrictions on your food, you'll probably find you don't want it so much. The moment you say to somebody, you can only eat this much, or you can't, more importantly, eat any more than this, because there's two different ways of uh, explaining that, saying, I want you to aim to only eat this much, is very different to saying to somebody, you cannot eat any more than this. Very different psychological reactions. Um, I just hate it, but usually, when I've done a cut before, I've been working from half five in the morning till nine o'clock at night. So I'm still burning a crap load of calories throughout the day. So I needed that energy. Now I can quite happily cut weight on 2,300 calories. Sometimes I probably don't even hit that. Like I can get to the end of my day, I've hit my protein target and I've almost got 600 calories left. You know, I'll, eat, I'll use them because I, you know, I want to have something for myself as a treat in the evening because I've done everything else. But it's one of those things. So Food fascinates me because every single person I have trained has had a very different relationship with food. Mainly if we, I'm not gonna touch on eating disorders today, um, but from a disordered eating, which is very different from eating disorder. Eating disorders are anorexia nervosa, um, bulimia nervosa, um, anorexia through exercise is a very a slightly different variation of which is what we have to look out for as trainers, or at least we should be looking out for as trainers. and Obesity is a mental health disorder, but it's not an eating disorder. There's, um, they haven't, they're, they're, they're trying to classify, it's clearly a mental health disorder because to eat yourself into oblivion is not great. Just as to starve yourself into oblivion is not great, but there's a different um, classification of it and they're not, they're not quite sure where it sits yet, but it's, it's definitely, it's not a choice. People aren't obese by a choice. They become obese because they've, you know, over time, people gain weight because they stop paying attention. I will gain weight if I stop paying attention to what I'm eating and my activity levels. It's as simple as that because as soon, and I had this moment when I was, it was last lockdown, last lockdown, wow, what an awful thing to say. So the lockdown last year, um, me and my other half were on a paddleboard, my paddleboard, and I was in my wetsuit. My other half took a picture, and bop, there was this belly here, an extra stone of weight around my midriff. And I was like, holy shit, what the fuck is that doing there? And it was simple. I just stopped paying attention. That's all I'd done. I just, I'd, I'd basically, you know, I think we all did really, just giving up on tracking anything. I was just eating if I felt hungry. I was eating stuff that made me feel good. Little thing we're gonna perk up on in a minute. And I'd gained a stone, and I lost that stone in about a month, because I just paid attention again. So there's a big difference between gaining weight, regaining attention to your exercise and your uh, calorie intake, and there's being obese, which is you can't seem to stop that that process from happening. So there is, there is a mental block in there somewhere. So I think it's very important to distinguish that before we go forward. Anyway, so yeah, I'm a long cutter. I don't do being hungry, I'm, I'm in no rush. I give myself plenty of time. Um, it's quite funny, actually. People have turned around and said, oh, you know, these memes are popping up. Oh, you know, when we thought summer was cancelled and now Boris says it's June 21st, well, I'm not going to get my summer body. You've got four months. You've got four months until June. Like, you have plenty of time. Like, now is really when you want to start working on this if you intend to have the summer bod for later on. 
the, the trouble is it depends on how much time you want to do it. If you want to drastically cut in six weeks, it's going to be shit and you're going to fucking be uncomfortable, but it's doable. Whereas I don't want to go through that phase. So I tend to drag it out as long as I possibly can do so that, you know, I can, I can, you know, just, it doesn't matter if I have a wobble or a fluctuation. And actually what that allows me to do is still do things with my kids and my family. Like if I know that my deficit is quite small, but I can I can wobble it a little bit over a longer period of time, which is generally what I tend to do with my clients as well. It's It then means if we want to go for an ice cream, I can have an ice cream. If we decide we're going to have a takeaway once a week, which we normally do, that's like our ritual, Saturday night's takeaway and film night, I can have a takeaway. I don't need to worry about it because it's just it's just part of the ritual. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not keeping my window so small that any kind of fall off is going to completely trash and ruin me. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a bit of give and take. It means my lifestyle doesn't have to change too much. And also, you know, I can just manage it better so I don't become that guy that's constantly hungry and stuff. Um, so another thing that, now to move into the other parts of it is, the biggest thing I've found with a lot of people is food has memories. And this is something you can look up and it's the, why the importance of food and stuff. We all have a food that triggers a memory. We all do. There's a smell. There is that. Because food and smell are so intrinsically linked, they are pretty much one and the same. You, If you smell something, you taste it. If you can taste something, you can smell it usually. It's a very rare thing that one, these two aren't working in unison. Um, it's almost the same as you know, touch and, and sight. If you touch something, you can probably imagine what it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to look like. You know, they are intrinsically linked. They all work together. So there's a taste, there's a smell, there's a nostalgia that's attached to certain foods. And that's very important to remember because if there's a memory and a nostalgia and a certain smell or a certain taste that triggers a response, it can also become a placebo, I suppose is the word, it's not medical. Uh, it can become a therapy, it can become a, uh, a, a any go-to, really. And I've genuinely had clients, we've, had, we've hit revelations before, where I've had a client before that was genuinely terrified of going near anything sugary, just abscond from it in any way, shape or form, because once she had it, she would just binge on it for the rest of the day. I mean, and it was it was so interesting to listen to because she knew she was consciously doing it, so that's why she stopped herself. But once she'd started, it just seemed to take control and go. Now, everyone would say, oh, it's just a lack of discipline, but it wasn't. It was because, and, and this comes from some questioning as well. We didn't just find this out. I had to get to the root of it. When her mother didn't have much money, and didn't necessarily, you know, hard work. And she was um, Jamaican, came over and, you know, it was, times were hard for everybody back then, but especially for that community as well. And they didn't have much money. So to have something sweet was a big deal. It was a sign of affection. It was a sign of mother's love. It was a sign of, you know, I don't have much, but what I do have, we're going to make a big deal of it and we're going to, you know, turn this into something. And that's why every single time something sweet here, it was that just rush of emotional nostalgia of love, connection, family. And when you get that, you don't want to let it go. You really don't. Now, it reset in the morning. It wasn't like when she started it, it would go on until somebody literally like cut her hands off when she went for a sugar bowl. But there's a huge rush of emotions that come in. Food has the ability to make us feel good. 
This is why. This is why we use food as therapy because food makes us feel good, especially carbs and sugary substances because the sugar has a dopamine hit. Now this bullshit fucking sugar is more addictive than cocaine and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, true, but people aren't blowing 100 quid a weekend on sugar, are they? Like, oh well, I mean, you might do, but you know what I mean? Having been a doorman, I can assure you now, I wasn't finding people licking sugar cubes in the toilet. It was, it was a little bit more serious than that. It gives us a dopamine response. It's a very acute one, but it, it dissipates pretty quickly, which is why it's that cliche that when somebody's upset, usually females, I don't know why media does it like this, but they do, you know, it's that whole sat there eating an ice cream and crying because the sugar's there making you feel good. It's a nostalgia. Again, it incorporates all of this stuff. It's a clever marketing scheme, really, from old hagen but there you go. But we do, we use food and drink, and, and drink is a big one as well, as therapy because it, it has the ability to make us feel good. And it it's really ingrained in to something that I think is much older than we are because you know food food is ritualistic food is an act of love you know as as a parent one of the you know a strong act of love for me is to make sure that my children have food that they like to extend their palate to, it's, a, it's a bonding ritual would you like to try some of my food do you want to help make food? Now, granted, I have a very tiny kitchen and it's usually a bit of a rush, so we haven't done too much of it. Baking with your kids, baking with any small person, baking with your other half, baking with your mum, baking with your nan as a kid. These are all hugely important bonding rituals that happen around food because it is the only thing that we can control. And this is something else I'm going to get into in a little bit, but it connects families and and nations together, you know, families are bonded around food. My dad was a, he wasn't, a, my dad's not a strict man by any way, shape or form. He just had certain things he wouldn't deal with. But one of the rules we had was at the dinner table, we all, me and my dad and my brother would sit together at the dinner table and we'd talk about our day. Anything after that, didn't care. But we were sat down, eating dinner and, you know, sticking off the table rules and stuff. Don't chew your mouth open, stop gawping at the telly and all that stuff, which is, again, rituals that are built around food. There's a very strict etiquette around food in every culture that you have to abide by, otherwise you get some funny looks, which, again, is, is, is fascinating because it doesn't make sense that we'd have that, but we do. And we talked and we bonded over food. You do. what Parties, barbecues are probably the closest thing we have to ritualistic food now. Um, when we have big dinner parties, if, if you are lucky enough to do so. Why do you think come dine with me is so fascinating? Because we're like, oh my God, like, do, do people are going to judge people on the, their ability to present food and then hold conversation. But it's, it is, it's so intrinsically linked to everything that we do. And for migrants that come over into our country, some of the easiest ways for them to integrate with us is to bring their food. I mean, Eng English food is English food, you know? And it's funny because... Our poor people's food, which is actually, if you're going to look at national dishes, you always look at the poor people food because that's the most available food source we had. Now, for the English, it's things like pie, um, and like steak and kidney pie, or you know, and and things like that because it was just bits of stuff that was left over, stews and pies and things like that are are, are traditional food because it's stuff that we could easily get hold of, vegetables 
maybe a bit of rabbit if you found one, pheasant, game. It wasn't really when, until agriculture really picked up, that we started having more important stuff. You just, you chuck whatever you could in a pot and then and boil it, basically. And yet, it's funny because all the food that we, we incorporate to other, from other cultures, which we love, we love eating other people's food. Chinese food, Indian food, Mexican food, Turkish food, Greek food, you name it. We take that because it's so different. But the funny thing is, is we're just eating other people's poor person's food. But because it's so different to ours, we absolutely adore it. And it's a great way for them to integrate into our society. So look, we can bring this. It's very easy. I mean, they're just cooking the food that their parents used to cook. And we are like, yeah, we'll have some of that. It's a matter of convenience. It's a matter of love and a labor of love. Like if I'm gonna cook a meal, I'm gonna take my time with it. I prep it properly. I wanna use the right tools. I want to craft this dish that's going to bring some good emotion to me, make me feel good. I want to see the look on my family's face when they eat it. And you know, you want to get that feedback saying, was it okay? Yes, it was amazing. Thank you so much for doing that for me. Other times you're like, I don't want to do this. This is actually something that's I need to just rapidly do and you buy it from somewhere else. Um, it's also, um, it can be used to teach it can also be used to enslave. It's, it's, this is the thing. Like Food, again, is so linked to everything. Everything. Like You can teach weights and measures with food. You can teach language with food. You can teach bonding and togetherness with food. You can also enslave an entire population with it. You can completely change someone's cuisine. Like, I mean, the chicken tikka masala and coronation chicken are not Indian dishes. The vindaloo is not an Indian dish. We created it and they just decided to use it. You know what I mean? It's like a lot of stuff that the Brits eat and we claim it to be foreign food. It's not foreign food. We've just assimilated it. But it was a very easy way and it was used in Central Africa. It was used in India as well. We come in, we change the food, which means it's more Europeanized, which means it's an easy way to assimilate their culture into us, which is, again, why food is so important. I mean, Jesus Christ, the Romans understood that if you didn't give the common people their grain dole every day, and this is the thing, the dole um, and, and welfare has been around quite literally, quite literally for 2,000 years. It's not a modern thing. Um, and it's not even a socialist thing, actually. It's quite an imperialistic thing. Like, if you want to control the mob, us, you make sure we can eat. Again, and this is why lockdown became very, very interesting because there's a few things you don't mess with with people on a level. And every every parliament and government knows this because parliament and government has been around since, Jesus Christ, ancient Mesopotamia. Like we, we have this system and it's always ruled oppressed. The mob, the mob has to be kept happy. Then basically, if you can keep them happy, you can get away with whatever you want. And that's why the lockdown was interesting because we weren't happy. We, we weren't because... The things you don't mess with with the common people, right? Their food, their drink, and their ability to fornicate. Now that sounds vulgar, but it's true. If you can eat, drink, and fuck, you are pretty happy because that's pretty much what we want to do. And it gives us, you know, sim simple pleasures, you know. But lockdown was like, you can't really go out and eat where you want. You can still order it, but it's going to be, it's not as easy. You can't go down the pub and have a drink and socialize and, you know, you can only go out for once a day, so you've got to really make sure you get everything. And you can't go and sleep with anybody unless you're living with them. Well, big problem started there, right? And this is why people were sneaking off for a bit of hoo-ha like that guy that rented a jet ski to go to the Isle of Man to see his girlfriend. Buddy, mate, that, that's that's a trip. Um, that's, that's, in, that's crazy. Uh, and yeah, I mean, like, it, it so 
the way the reason I feel that food is so important, probably even the most important thing in human society, and I generally mean that it is more important than money, it's more important than status, it's more important than anything, is because food is the only thing on this world that we can control. And that sounds silly, but it is. You can't control the quality of the air you breathe because you can't filter all of it out. And well, I mean, well, you could do, but it's a bit of a pig. You can't control the water you drink nowadays anyway. And even then you, can, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't stop everything getting in and out of your water. But you can decide what goes in and out of your mouth and how long it stays there for, which is why eating disorders are fascinating because it's using the control of food either through severe restriction or through binge and regurgitation or, or voiding of some kind, is a control measure. Um, I often, having had experience with people with eating disorders, it is, and this isn't a generalization because I don't want to get into, I don't want to belittle anybody that works predominantly with eating disorders and stuff, but a lot of it comes down to a lack of control. Something happens where control is limited, so we instantly turn to food because we can control it. We can control it down to the bare essences of it. If we don't want to eat it, we don't have to. If we want to eat it, we can eat as much or as little of it as we want. And we can also decide how long it stays in our system for. That I mean, that's a lot of control. I mean, water is very hard to get out of your system once it's gone into your system. You can't very well vomit it up very well. And it's very hard. Diuretics are kind of, they take a little while to get through. So, you know, it's not like you can, not to give anybody any ideas, obviously, it's not like you can, you know, stick your fingers in your throat and yak it up or take some very strong laxatives and void it out pretty quickly. Liquids are kind of funny. Air, once it's in, it goes into gaseous exchange, pumps around your system, comes out. I mean, you can hold your breath, but again, it's not really a control mechanism, but food is the only thing, the only thing that you can control, which is why it's so important when somebody else controls it. As I said about the grain dough and things before, it, there was a huge revolt in ancient Rome because the grain crop failed in Egypt, which was their main supplier of grain, and their stores had gone low, and the place erupted because there was no food. Food controls everything. It really does, which is why, not to be a conspiracy theorist, because it's absolutely common news, everybody was worried about Bill Gates um, putting microchips in a vaccine. It's like he owns 248,000 acres of land now for agricultural research, and he's basically crippled the Indian farming community by his green standards. Like, food control is what you want to worry about, people. It's definitely not bloody microchips in, in tracking devices, because guess what? You, everybody fucking knows where we are anyway. Anyway, that, that's for another day. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But food is the only thing we can control, which is why we actually really take so much. We take it more seriously than we think we do. And it's not until it runs away with us because it's gained control and we're not in control anymore. And this is a key thing. When food starts to control you and you're no longer in control of food, that's where the problem arises. And again, it usually comes from paying attention. If we're using food as therapy, what we actually need to do is, why are you using food as therapy? Is there an emotional attachment? For instance, another good one is uh, when you're stressed, you go for the cake draw. Now, why would you do that? It doesn't make sense necessarily. Why would you like that? Very, like, and everybody has a very specific thing that they go to. Now, everybody says chocolate or something sugary and stuff, but everybody has their own version of that. It's a specific chocolate bar maybe, or it's a piece of cake, or it's a something... You know, it's very individual to the person. It comes under a big 
everyone generalizes, but each person has a very specific thing. And what it may be is that every time that you were upset, your mother sat you down with a piece of cake and a cup of tea. Every time. Parents are, and it's usually people, not so much now, it's a little bit different, but I found that usually slightly older clients that I have, I say slightly older, I mean, you know, probably about 10, 10 to 20 years older than me. Parents weren't great expressing emotions. It wasn't really a thing to do to talk about some of that as we spoke about in the Men's Mental Health Podcast. You know, men still aren't doing it because that's not what we do. And you, it was, you, you, oh, it's that whole English thing. If there's a problem, have a cup of tea. It, it was designed, I think, to just break the tension in the room a bit. Like, if you're upset, come on, let's just have a, do you want a piece of cake? Have a piece of cake, sit down and talk to me about it. Now, what the cake actually symbolizes is a break in conversation so the other person can probably digest it, or I don't really know how to make you happy, we'll just have a piece of cake. Trouble is, that now becomes your go-to stressing because every time as a child you were exposed to a stressful event and you needed some help or guidance with it, well, what happened? You were presented with something sweet. Now, cake, again, could be your go-to. It could be that you don't want to, you know, cake's not your thing, but a chocolate bar is. You know, it's one of those things, but it is the only thing we can actually control. And it's genuinely, people's relationship with food is so messed up because so many assholes out there are trying to tell you that food is intrinsically bad. Food's bad, carbs are bad, fat's bad. This is bad, that is bad. Nobody seems to rag on protein because you can't, but you know, the type of protein you have is bad. It's a huge amount of control over people by just telling somebody that something's bad because you don't want to eat anything that's bad. And that's ingrained in because we are the only animals that actively cook our food. Now, some animals will eat passively cooked food because they're scavengers, and if something gets caught in a bushfire and it's still edible, they'll eat it. But that, I mean, and that's how we discovered cooking meat was a good thing. Um, it was probably, you know, because Aboriginals use bushfires to clear out things and, and eat the, uh, the, the lizards and stuff that are left, and, and Central Africa and all that stuff. But basically, we decided that cooking food was better for us, for whatever reason. It actually makes it last slightly longer. It kills anything that could give you a bad belly, etc., etc. And so to, to have that control, to have that ability to alter your food down to that point, and you know, being the only ones that do this means that it is a massive control thing, because we, we actually control what we do with it first. And I think that's another reason why, you know, that whole men and fire and barbecue thing it is a very primal thing. It is, it's like you, you create a fire and you cook food for other people and you've got to get it right because if you don't get it right, horrible stuff happens. And yeah, it's, it's just, it's so put into control and everybody's trying to get their thing on it. And this is why the fitness industry and the mental health industry, um, they, they coincide because we use food for therapy and stuff, but the fitness industry itself is a bit fucked because everybody's like, well, if we can control what people think is good or bad, we can then sell that good or bad to them. It's also the matter of convenience as well. There's a really good, um, uh, it's on Netflix, I think still, it's called In Defense of Food by Michael Pollan. And he's done two series actually. One's called Cooked, which explains how fire, air, water, and the earth uh, have affected our food. It's really interesting actually. And the other one is in defense of food. And actually we, on average, cook far less now in this generation than we did a generation, two generations ago. 
almost down by like 50% because of the convenience of everything. And everybody's trying to look for new, newer, more convenient ways to give food to you. Protein in a bar rather than, you know, a shake. You don't, you know, don't, have, to, you don't have to make the bar, the bar's already there. You know, a shake, oh, look at all that effort of a shake. Oh, just, just have this bar. You know, heaven forbid you cooked a meal, you know, even with takeaway now, you don't even have to go and collect it. You can deliver anything now. It's like everything is moving in towards convenience because it's easy to sell because we like convenience. But I think for a lot of people, this is where the conflict is because we want to control our food, but it's so accessible, it puts you in a dangerous precedent because when it becomes inaccessible, we tend to panic and fall apart, which is, I think, another reason why calorie deficits um, scare people because it is a retraction of that abundance of the only thing you can control. And you're trying to control something that's being taken away, the control's been taken away from you. And, you know, a lot of people, when you speak the word calorie deficit, they start getting itchy and they're like, oh, I can't have the foods I want anymore because it's all been associated with this bad, you know, all food is bad, blah, blah, blah. So it's not, it's not. No no food is, in, is, you know, unless it's poison or you're powerfully allergic to it, no food is intrinsically bad. There's just overconsumption of foods and some foods are going to use up more of a calorie allowance than others. If you want a donut, have a goddamn donut, but just understand that if you're on you know, I don't know, 1300 calories a day and that donut's a good 400 calories, well, you haven't got much to play with afterwards. But that's not to say you don't have it. You've just got to realize that that's the options. It's no different than playing around with money or anything else. It's just if this is all you've got, it's all you've got. A building material is the same. If you want to build your wall so high and it uses up all your bricks, that's fine. You're not building anything else for the rest of the day. So it's it's an interesting thing. And, and drink as well is another thing because throughout the ages and stuff throughout survival and stuff. And again, this is why I think these are very, very old, old, old processes. Is that, you know, it's, it's fascinating that the drink plays a huge part in our societies as well. You know, banquets and feasts and stuff always had some form of liquid passed around. The Greeks and the Romans had wine. The 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 Vikings and the, and the Scandinavians and the Germanic peoples had mead. The Sumerians and Egyptians and stuff had beer of the if there was more of a middle eastern uh, invention we had um sort of a cross between wine and beer and stuff it's just the fermentation process just happens slightly differently in different places depending on what you've got but that's hugely important as well you know uh, to, to to offer somebody and this is the, the the next bit i'm going to come into um sort of on my perspective of things is you know to offer somebody a beer is like quite an important thing have have some of this fermented liquid because one, fermented liquids are generally safer, to a degree. Um, and, you know, back in, in the day, to, to offer, to be at a feast and have somebody offer you a drink was, it was an offering of their goods. And, you know, there was specific, depending on what they were offering you, depending on the occasion. And it, the thing that fascinates me most is why when somebody pours a drink upon us or throws it in our face, is it's so offensive. It's shocking. It is genuinely like, whoa. You just threw a drink at somebody. Like, what are you playing? It is the ultimate insult to flick your drink in somebody's face. Food doesn't seem to have the same effect. You can throw food in somebody's face and it's almost... Okay, we start in a food fight or what? But to throw your drink into somebody's face is a huge insult. It's a big taboo. And, you know, in some cultures, it was actually a sin to waste water. If you go to the desert... Um, 
peoples of, of way back around sort of Northern Africa or, you know, Saharan Africa and the Middle East to waste what was a sin. So to actively throw liquid into somebody's face would have been the ultimate act of disrespect. It's like you're, you're willing to sin to throw your drink in someone's face. Nowadays, like even now, it's like the ultimate act of disgust is to go and pour your drink, a libation onto somebody's head. You know, the only time you ever wasted a liquid was to pour it for the gods, you know, um, in some places you threw some into the air and you poured it on the floor to offer it to the sky and the ground. Uh, drink is also um, a welcoming gesture. If, some, if a stranger comes on your door back in ancient Greece, it was actually seen as part of the law that you had to offer strangers food and drink and shelter because that was seen to be a good citizen. It was, you know, and it was a punishable offence by the gods if you didn't offer somebody in. In Mongolian culture, you'd offer somebody salt tea as a sign that you weren't going to kill them that night. It was a sign of safety to offer hospitality to somebody, i.e. offer your resources to somebody. It was basically, look, well, I'm not going to kill you tonight because I'm going to feed you. And all of these things, are they're inside of us. These, these are things that we can't explain. Like I can't tell you why having somebody throw a drink in somebody's face is actually so offensive. It doesn't make any sense that it would do unless you understand that throughout the entire course of the human race, food and drink are the most precious things we can have. A shelter you can pretty much find anywhere. You can build one out of most things. Food and water are only available if you know what you're looking for or it's running around in front of you or trickling out of a stream or it's a pond that's actually drinkable. So to, to waste that in any kind of way or offer it in any kind of way is hugely significant. And for me, I, I have very strict rules about how I approach hospitality. So I there's not many foods I don't like, but there are some that I'm not massively not fond of. There's, I mean, I'm not allergic to anything. I mean, there's only about one food that I generally can't stand, and that's peanuts in any kind of way, shape, or form. Like, I just I physically can't eat it. If somebody were to offer me a, a, you know, a bag of peanuts or anything with peanuts in it or peanut butter sandwich, I'd, I would have to refuse. It's not because, and that's the only thing I would refuse. I'm not a particularly big fan of peas. I'm not a massive fan of parsnips. I'm not a massive fan of certain other foods. But if I go to somebody's house and they don't know this and they've put them on a plate for me, I'm going to eat them every time. Not because I'm just trying... I suppose it is trying to be polite, but also for me, it's like you've offered me your food. You don't have to do that because if anything... We know we all do this. It's like feeding and clothing ourselves, not even clothing ourselves, but feeding ourselves is very important. And if you're going to offer me some of your resources, some of your food, I'm not going to be that guy that turns around and says, oh, no, I couldn't do that. Even if I'm on a diet and I've had this before. Well, I've been I've been on a calorie deficit. I'm trying to cut weight and somebody just brings out a plate of food. I'm not going to say, sorry, Cutting, can't eat those. Sorry, what do you mean you're bringing chips out? It's like, I'll eat it because it's, it to me, the ultimate act of being rude would be to turn around and say no to somebody who's offered to cook me dinner. I've said, oh yeah, thank you very much. If I've not said what I'm after, and to be honest, I wouldn't. If somebody's going to offer me to make me some food in their house, I'll just say, yeah, whatever you've got. Like, I'm not going to sit there and be that person because I understand or have this this internal thing that food to offer your food and drink to somebody is a huge deal we don't think of it now because food's in abundance but it wasn't much long ago that food wasn't in abundance and to to, to offer that to somebody without any hesitation is is a huge 
thing for me. Even now, like I, I, if somebody says I'll help yourself in the fridge, unless they're like my very best friends and I know that they can do the same in my house because we have that relationship, I'm very hesitant. I'll take a very small amount of something. Even in my in-laws' house, like where you know I've been with with their daughter and for ten years, and and we have two children together. It's like even then, I'm still not going to eat. I have a couple of pieces of toast. Is that enough to fill me up? No, it's not. But I'm not going to eat any more than what I would feel comfortable taking. Because I understand that this is their stock room, you know, this is their stores. This is what, I mean, if anything happened tomorrow, that's what they've got to live on. So, you know, it's a very old rooted thing for me that if somebody's going to offer me some, any form of hospitality, I'm going to take it very, very seriously. And this, this is where food, I think, actually affects us far more than we realize. Because it is... The, it is everything. Food is absolutely everything. And I don't mean that, oh my God, food is everything. It's like, it really is though. It genuinely really is. And it's it's just so beyond our understanding because it's so old and it's so ingrained in us that food is important, water is important. Throughout history, banquets and feasts have marked huge occasions and and you know it brings people together around a central point you know you all eat at the same place you can then talk and converse um you know it, it, disputes are started and fallen at feasts you know it's a way to say goodbye to people it's a way to say hello to people it's a celebration of unity it's a it's a morning of death the, the, the whole act of eating and drinking and and food in itself is something that's so ingrained into us that it's just got so much more involvement in our lives than I think we want to give it credit for. And that's why when people come and say like, oh, this is gonna sound silly, but I just can't seem to do it. It makes perfect sense because from the moment you grow up, and you know, food is food is controlled for you until you gain control of it. And it's also one of the first things you gain control of as well. You know, you right, you can make your own dinner now. What? Yeah, you can make your own dinner. You now have I have given you access to the resources we have. I don't have to tell you how much you need to eat. I'm gonna let you decide how much you want. You can then create it, and then you have discussions over like wasting food and stuff and things like that. And you know, for a lot of parents, wasting food is important because again, we understand how much that food costs. We had to put man hours into earning the money to acquire the food. We then had to put man hours into prepping the food. It doesn't take much, but we still had to do the active service of even just putting something on a tray into an oven to cook it. And then to have somebody waste it is usually why we clean it up because we understand that there's about four or five man hours worth of food there. And somebody's like, ah, I don't want it. It, it. it messes with our sensibilities. It really does. And you know, there are certain rituals and taboos as well that come in, you know, in some places to to leave your plate empty is a massive insult because it shows that somebody didn't serve enough. If you go to Japan, I think it is in the Middle East, if you are if you finish your plate, which is in the Western culture, is if you finish your plate and leave your knife and fork um together, it's again a bit of etiquette. And etiquette's a massive part of food as well. It teaches us manners and things, but everywhere's slightly different. Some places to eat with your hands is perfectly normal, but we think Jeez, what are you doing? And other places to use a knife and fork seems strange. Um, some places you use chopsticks or whatever. But yeah, I mean, it, it's quite simply in Japanese culture. If you finish your plate, it shows that the, the host didn't bring enough food for you. Well, I've eaten all of it. It's actually 
a bigger sign of respect to leave a little bit and going, oh, I finally reached my limit, thank you so much. Whereas over here, if we don't finish our plate, which then which hugely falls into disordered eating, um, which we'll, we'll look at in another podcast because it's quite interesting how far back that goes. It's actually seen to be better if you do clear your plate as a sign of, you know, oh, thank you so much. It was so good I had to eat all of it. So it, it controls everything. It really does control everything that we do as a society, as an individual, as, as parents, as, as children, as grandparents, as hosts, as guests. The whole thing revolves around food and drink. So next time you get a bit overwhelmed by it or there's, you know, certain emotions attached to food and things, don't be shocked because this is actually happening since since, since somebody put something in their mouth and thought, I didn't die from eating that. That's important. That was the knowledge to pass on. So food and drink are the biggest pillars of any society and to have an emotional connection with food is not weird. It's not, you know, a bad thing. It's just sometimes it can get out of hand. Um, just at the end of this one, thank you for the feedback I've had on the other podcast. Again, if there's anything you want me to cover, then please do. Also, you'll notice um, in the outro now, there is no music. That is simply because when uh, I put the music on the end of the podcast, I could only produce it to Spotify. I'd actually want it across as many platforms as possible. So that's why the few things change. But thanks for listening, guys, and I'll speak to you all later. And that's the end of today's podcast. Thank you for listening. We really hope you enjoyed it. If you have any comments, good or bad, we'd love to hear from you because it always helps us improve or to keep doing what you enjoy hearing. We will be back soon with another episode, so stay tuned. Make sure you subscribe so you know where it is, and we'll speak to you all soon. Bye.